Hello, and welcome to Just Keep Writing While Black. A podcast for writers by writers to keep you writing. I'm Marshall. And I'm LP. And joining us today for the second week of Just Keep Writing While Black in 2023 for Black History Month is Yvette Lisa Indelovu. Yeah. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. <laughs> uh, this is exciting. So uh, before we get launched into our normal questions, do you mind just telling our audience a little bit about yourself? Mm. Uh, my name is Yvette Lisandovu. I am a Sarungano from Zimbabwe. Sarungano means storyteller. I am the author of the short story collection Drinking from Graveyard Wells, as well as the co-founder of the Voodoo Not Summer Fellowship for Black Writers. Hey. Oh, that's so awesome. Uh, yeah, we'll be definitely jumping. Speaking of the stories, let's just talk about the collection of stories. Um, so we always start with the first question. And um, our typical first question is, tell us about the writing of this short story collection in three words. And the mm. words don't have to be connected. It doesn't have to be a phrase. Just three words that come to mind. Uh, Afro surreal. Wait, women filled with rage. That's 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 more than <laughs> that's more than three okay. vengeful spirits. <laughs> and I'll throw in South yeah. African mythology in there. <laughs> Way longer than three words, but yeah, <laughs> uh, it's all good. It's all good. Um, so normally what we do is um, LP is frantically typing everything that you said. So we're going to kind of go back through those. And if you can talk us through why you chose them, that'd be awesome. Ooh. So Afro Surreal was the first one. Yeah, uh, this is an Afro Surrealist uh, collection. Um, there's a lot of uh, absurdity, social horror, um, everything Afro Surreal and spectacular. You got some magical realism in there. Uh, women filled with rage. I think a lot of the stories kind of, you know, deal with uh, women, black women in particular, taking on uh, the patriarchy and capitalism. So, you know, you have, you know, that that rage, that feminist rage uh, coming in through there. Uh, vengeful spirits. Well, there's a lot of uh, Southern African mythology creatures, that sort of thing. So you have people speaking from, you know, beyond the grave throughout uh, this collection. So I want to run it back and ask you to describe Afro-surrealism. Yeah. Partly partly for people listening. Yeah. Afro-surrealism is about telling the narrative of the contemporary Black experience. These experiences being uh, so absurd and, you know, sometimes so horrific that they don't seem real, that they seem uh, surreal. So Afro-surrealism leans into that absurdity uh, to talk about those real issues. So... I think Get Out by Jordan Peele is like, I think, one of the most famous examples of Afro-surrealism in a film. So my collection kind of, you know, tips into that horror and absurdism and fantasy to talk about, you know, uh, real things happening in Zimbabwe, what it's like for women living under a dictatorship, um, that sort of thing. Yeah, so I've been reading this in real time and we're in a group chat together, so you've... you've (laughs) collected several of my thoughts about this. So I'm going to espouse them publicly so that everyone else can hear them as well. Um, so one of the comps for this book is Her Body and Other Parties by Carmen Maria Machado, um, who is a brilliant writer and fantastic. And like, I understand why it's a comp, but I, I love, uh, and Machado's collection is very much feminist and looking at like kind of a postmodern woman in a lot of ways. And we're like, that's super interesting. In the ways that this compares and contrasts, 
um, your collection is uniquely black. It's uniquely mm. Zimbabwe. It's uniquely Southern African. It's uniquely woman in a way that like I've never seen before. Um, I wanted to know what besides her body and other parties you think of as uh, you think what other books you think of as in conversation with Ooh. drinking from graveyard. Yeah, uh, definitely. Uh, what it means when a man falls from the sky by Leslie Arima. This is a Nigerian short story collection. I think it came out maybe five years ago. Uh, just really, really great. One of my favorite stories uh, from that collection is about uh, a woman who can, well, they live in a society where women can make children out of baby dolls and breed them to life. Uh, and it uses like uh, Nigerian mythology really, really well. So yeah, you can kind of see like the Afrofuturism, Afrosocialism are in, uh, in that collection. Um, I would say some Zimbabwean authors are No Violet Bulawayo. Uh, she recently had a post-colonial um, fable um, called uh, Glory, which uh, was one of my favorite books from last year. Um, yeah, so she uses like animal characters to talk about the fall of the Mugabe uh, dictatorship in Zimbabwe. Oh, and I would also say uh, my work is in conversation with Shingai Kakunda's work, uh, the author of the novella, and this is how to stay alive, which is a great time tra- time travel novella. And that's my homegirl. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'm adding this to the show notes. I don't have to. I don't have to include this, but I like literally printed it so oh. that I could walk around it. <laughs> so I could walk around at work and read the stories. Like my students are working, and I'm just like, uh huh, uh huh. Like so, I've been. I've been pouring over this for the last several days. Um, I, I really think it's interesting. Um, I don't know. I'm new to this term, Afro surreal, but when you mm-hmm. said get out, that rang a bell in my head for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the stories that stood out to me was there's a subtlety to the, the horror aspects to some of the stories, like the mm-hmm. one with the, the eyes where the, yeah. the, 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 the character loses his eyes and there's mm-hmm. like this, transfer of i think you call it natural uh what was it called naturalization naturalization yeah Yeah. so um i don't know i just that was the first one that came into my head when you were talking so Mm -hmm. i don't want to spoil every story in this because every one of our listeners (laughs) needs to read this whole thing but can you talk just about that particular story Mm. yeah so with that story um it's called home became a thing with thorns and i'm exploring the surreal experience of being a black immigrant so the world of that story is kind of like a hybrid between uh, a mashup of America and South Africa, where there's a lot of Afrophobia, um, xenophobia uh, to black people uh, in particular. So, um, and, and you know, I'm an immigrant to the uh, to the USA. I have family in South Africa, so I was kind of uh, taking my experiences and my family's experiences from being in the US and uh, South Africa. And, you know, with immigrating, you kind of have to give up something. So in that story, uh, characters have to give up something that they love and they don't know what the state is going to take from them until it's, you know, it takes the thing. So um, you can lose body parts like the, the main character at the beginning of the story um, loses his eyes because he's an artist and he, you know, that's his, his passion. Uh, other people lose, you know, family members, recipes, um, their language and different things that are integral to who they are, but they have to give it up to the state as the price for uh, naturalization for becoming a, a citizen of that place. 
Well, it was just so, I mean, it was heartbreaking at the end, of course, but like just the, the subtlety of just, okay, this person's losing this, losing this. And then to have the, that character working where they're basically dealing with the, um, the discarded the parts, the waste. Oh my God. Like just that, the imagery in that combined with, like you said, giving something up to, to go somewhere else. It was, I don't know. That was just one of so many stories in here. So I, I don't know. I, I, I don't have a question necessarily. I just, sometimes I read things and I just don't know where to go with it. But like that yeah. one stood out to me mostly because especially, and, and going back to what you were saying about the surrealness of it is at some point, the other character gives the eyes back and then yeah. they're just back, back. And there's something when you read it, it's like, oh, well, there's got to be some, pro- nope. They're just back. Okay. Yeah. This works. <laughs> but it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's it's such a powerful thing when when it's, it's a, such a powerful meditation on what it means to immigrate and the idea that someone is willing to take something from you that doesn't mean anything to them Ooh. just so that they can't take something from you. Yeah. Uh, and it means so little to them that if you were to get it back, they wouldn't notice, you know? Um, yeah, I, I loved that story. I also really... Um, you heard me gush about Plumtree, and uh, I Aww. again compared that to, um, the husband spit the husband stitch by Carmen Maria Machado. It's the first story in that that uh, in her collection. One of the things that I enjoyed about it, both stories actually, is uh, in a short story collection you can achieve intertextuality, mm. um, and I think you get that throughout this, like one of the things I enjoy about your collection is that it teaches you how to read it. Mm. It teaches you how to interact with certain words. And then as the, as it goes on, these words are not foreign anymore. They're not things that I need to go look up because as they come up again and again, I'm like, Oh, and it's also teaching me about the culture mm. that the, the worlds exist in. Like, even if they're not exactly secondary, they are of the same part of the world, which is really powerful. So as the, so I learned about how to read this, read it while I'm reading it. Amazing. But, and that's one form of intertextuality. You can get that across a collection. I think about uh, uh, Olive Kitteridge by Elizabeth Strout. I think about um, uh, The Secret Lives of uh, Church Ladies by uh, Disha Filia. Um, but like The Husband Stitch, Plumtree, True Stories, manages to have intertextuality within one piece. And I just think that's so fucking cool. Um, uh, thank you. <laughs> anyone who's listening and, and doesn't care, this is fine. Um, the stitch is brilliant, but I don't like it. <laughs> I think it's far too clever, and I think this is just so earnest and so. Um, Carmen Maria Machado is brilliant. Me not liking a piece of, of hers, she's gonna get over because she's gonna go ahead and continue to be rich and like not care about what I have to say, and that's fine, but like, uh. Plumtree, I just think it, it's it's so brilliant. It achieves intertextuality, but it's also so earnest. It's so heartfelt. And like it leaves a gaping wound in you when you finish it. Um, and I was like two pages away from it before I messaged you about it. Uh, okay. two, two pages away from being finished with it before I was like, I can't with you. <laughs> <laughs> um, how would you give the Plumtree to someone who hasn't read it yet? Ooh. Um, it's a story in vignettes about the surreal experience of being, um, a woman. And, um, the subtitle of the piece is True Stories, even though there's, you know, there's magic, um, you know, uh, witches flying in winter wing baskets. 
um, different kinds of magics in there. There's still an element of truth. Each of those stories is a real uh, story, either that happened to somebody that I know or uh, a story that uh, I heard uh, in the community. So, yeah, I'm trying to, you know, like, I haven't read Plumtree in a while. So, like, wh- which one was your favorite vignette? Just, like, <laughs> remind <That's>, me. <laughs> it was so challenging about yeah. it because as I went on, it, it became clear mm. that the different stories, some certain characters from this vignette were mm. the same character in another vignette. And as yeah. that continued, I was just like, oh, I can't break this apart because if I were mm. to break this apart or excise parts of it, I would miss the effect of the whole and mm. it, it's it's so powerful in that way um no, switching your slight oh sorry no, i have a favorite one yeah. <laughs> oh, <okay. Go> ahead. <laughs> so there was some connected so i'm with you lp there was a couple you know the connect connectivity between the vignettes was was amazing um but the opening to it oh i, yeah. I i'm like and this is after i had read i don't know how many stories before this i'm like okay, so this is the start of this one. Like, I don't know what's going to, you know what I mean? Like, so that, and then you connect it back a little bit later. So ants obviously was probably my favorite. Um, But then you're right. There was the orange and the egg too. Like some of the the imagery combined with what's, what it means, what the act actually means that these people are going through is just, it's so powerful and, and hard to read at the same time in a Put good way, if down. that makes sense. <laughs> Put uh, your notebook down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I had to like open it up and be like, okay, let me like <laughs> quickly read through the story. So yeah, and uh, the one that you're talking about, so uh, it starts off with um, a young man and he's, um, you know, taking a piece of <laughs> urinating and ants are coming out instead of uh, urine. Oof. And that's like a curse. Um, and so that's actually based off of um, this uh, belief back home that um, when you get married, you can fix your partner. Um, and so what that means is if you fix your wife, she can't cheat on you. And if she cheats on you, then a curse is going to uh, manifest itself onto, you know, the man she cheats on or the whoever she decides to cheat on, you know, the husband with. So that's kind of like a form of like control uh, in a way, mm-hmm. but you know, that's using magic to control women, to control their sexuality, to control their behavior. Yeah. So um, it's like, again, using, you know, these surreal aspects to talk about, you know, uh, you know, this, <laughs> uh, you know, abuse and control that, that happens. What One of the other things I liked about the use of magical realism in this, mm-hmm. I feel like magical realism gets uh, kind of like a, uh, ghettoized to Latine people, um, me personally, and people can disagree as they feel. Uh, I think that uh, magical realism, the way that we, we, we look at it now is kind of a response to uh, the West telling us that who we were before the West encountered us mm. was savage and unimportant mm. and didn't deserve space. Mm. Um, and one of the things that I really enjoy about this collection is that there's a lot of that frisson of being a modern person mm. who's been told that, uh, you know, indigenous belief systems and folklore uh, are not real and that they have no value, but then having to interact with them. Mm. Um, it's a different kind of fish out of water story 
um, that shows up several times. Um, and I was just wondering, like, do you have thoughts on the use of magical realism uh, in your collection? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I do. So that's interesting. So one of the things that I love about magical realism is that you have magic happening in a mundane setting, in a, uh, you know, an everyday world just like our own. Um, and, you know, that's something that Afro-surrealism does, uh, as well as uh, Ngano. So these are the uh, traditional oral uh, fables from back home. So one of the key feature of uh, Ngano is that you have these fantastic things happening in, you know, in an ordinary village in, you know, a very mundane place. Um, so that's something I was like kind of hearkening back to is uh, Ngano uh, or Ngane Kwane. Um, and, you know, thinking about uh, how can I use like the fantastic to, you know, talk about, you know, the everyday, the uh, the mundane. So, yeah, so I, you know, I love magical realism. I, you know, I like what it does to my brain and how I can use it to, you know, explore, you know, systems of power. And I think that's, you know, the beauty of magical realism, uh, specifically like Latin American magical realism is that, you know, it was used to critique colonialism and systems of power by using, you know, this uh, mundane, uh, this magic in a mundane setting. So that's kind of what I'm uh, trying to do uh, as well. And I think sometimes it gets a bad rap, like people get really like upset when their work is called magical realism. But that's not the case for me. Like I love the label. So I consider my work <laughs> magical realism, Afro surrealism. Uh, some of it is Afrofuturist, uh, fantasy, uh, literary fantasy. I know that's a term that other people prefer. So yeah, all the labels. <laughs> all right, no, fantasy I... without plot isn't literary fantasy. It's just fantasy. <laughs> no right, right. <laughs> no, and I and I love the the mixture. Every story had some it just felt like there was going to be something different happening each time. Sometimes it was more fantastical. Sometimes it was a little more subtle. Um, one of the stories, and, and I have a couple of other, I have many questions, but um, one of the things I wanted to bring up was um, I believe, yeah. Second place is the first loser. That story. Okay. So that one. So the whole time this is happening, like until we realize what, um, what that character ends up, what business that character ends up starting. Mm. I found it really interesting the way that you depict this. Uh, there was some bitterness between um, the character bringing um, this white person home, mm. um, how they're interacting, you know, how you dealt with the, um, the, the grandfather character and the game. Um, mm. Can you talk about, no, you talked about truth. That's, that's my question. You talked about truth before, right? Mm. How true I mean, what what parts of the story is true and what's not? Mm. I don't know if you know the lift thing, for example. Mm. Yeah. Uh, so the um, the one of the co-founders of uh, Lyft got the idea to set this ride-sharing company when he went on vacation in Zimbabwe. So uh, back home, uh, you know, public transportation is sometimes not the most reliable. So what people do is, if somebody has a car, they usually pick up people along the way so you know if you're going to you know let's say a grocery store and you know you pick people up along the way and then you drop them off you know in town downtown and this is called a lift and we spell it l-i-f-t uh, and so when the founder of lift was in zimbabwe in vacation he saw this kind of ride share community ride share and it was like oh you know why why don't you make this into an app so 
you know, went back to the United States, started the app Lyft, spelled it uh, L-Y-F-T instead of uh, L-I-F-T. And, you know, Lyft became, uh, came before Uber. So there was Lyft. And then a few years later, Uber became a thing uh, after Lyft. So just, you know, I was just thinking about indigenous innovation there, how, you know, Zimbabweans were doing this, you know, nice thing for each other, this community right here, mm-hmm. because, you know, other people don't have cars, you know, the public transportation is not that reliable. So you have this community innovation that allows people to get around the city and you just give somebody a small tip to say, you know, thank you for dropping me off and thinking about how this uh, indigenous innovation was you know, turned into this capitalist corporation that, you know, exploits drivers, has, you know, all these these oh, issues and yeah. problems with it. And then a lot of the people actually don't know where the idea came from that, you know, he went to Zimbabwe, he was on vacation and, you know, got this idea, was inspired or discovered, <laughs> discovered the idea right. and then, you know, went back to America and made the app. Um, so, and then in that story, you know, I talk about, um, and, uh, a British um, explorer or other colonizer um, called David Livingstone. And, you know, in the history books, he's credited for discovering the Victoria Falls or Mosia Tunya, which are these beautiful waterfalls um, back home. They're one of the wonders of the world, natural wonders of the world. But, you know, he needed a local guide. You know, there, there were <laughs> indigenous people living around the falls. They took him to the falls to show him the falls, but then he's credited for discovering these falls. So how could he have discovered that thing when, you know, there were communities living around right. you know, the falls yeah. and took him there? Exactly. Um, so, so just thinking about that, you know, what does it mean for things to be whitewashed and, uh, and erased? And how much of the things that we credit white people for were actually things that they saw from, you know, black communities and, and took that, uh, you know, most recently I, I was watching a documentary on Netflix, actually, um, High on the Hog. I think, LP, you're the one who uh, suggested I watch uh, that. So, yeah, and you know, they were talking about uh, mac and cheese and how it was an enslaved, um, you know, cook who created that dish in the plantation. But, you know, it's, <laughs> it's the white people that are credited with this dish, you know, because, you know, he was enslaved. He's not going to get that credit. So thinking about, you know, little things like that, like where are these ideas actually coming from? Well, and there's some really, I mean, I don't want to spoil this whole story, but we kind of have, but the, one of the more powerful lines in that is when he, when the white character does learn about the falls mm-hmm. and he'd already been, you know, YouTubing it and everything else and, and, and making his video and he's like, he just posts it anyway. Yeah. And that's, and <laughs> it's that line just speaks volumes to what you're talking about is just like well i'm still just gonna do it yeah. you know it doesn't matter what the actual truth is you know mm, yeah exactly there, there's a good number of these stories that i actually talked to you about before you wrote them mm. <laughs> <laughs> so uh uh hadn't necessarily been paying attention to them as they came out but like mm. um like you taught me um you taught me what a Groot slang was. Mm. Uh, and uh, for anyone who doesn't know, it's a Southern African uh, uh, cryptid that it has the head of a very large and scary elephant, but the body of a huge serpent. And uh, they hoard diamonds, or they guard diamonds, I should say. Yeah. And 
if you do not, you know, pay the toll when you come trying to take diamonds, you could lose your life. Um, mm. And there's a story about a, a goot slang uh, title story, Drinking from Graveyard Wells. So that took a lot of different turns, that story did. Uh, so tell me about, like, what was your thought process with that one? Mm. I also want to hear about, damn it, what is it called? No, that was the wrong one. Sorry. That's not drinking from graveyard wells. That's when death comes to find you. I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, but I also have a question about the disappearing house story. Mm. Is drinking from graveyard wells. Talk to me about one or both of those at your leisure. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So when death comes to find you, that's the one about the group slang. So with that one, I was, you know, thinking about uh, the diamond industry and blood diamonds. Uh, so Zimbabwe has some of the largest uh, diamonds in the world. And, you know, the army and the government are in charge of that industry. And so there's this uh, process called the Kimberley process that's supposed to ensure that the world doesn't have blood diamonds and these big diamond companies that mostly serve America and the West, you know, are not using blood diamonds. But then the the definition of a blood diamond is um, a diamond that was obtained by um, a rebel army. But then in Zimbabwe, it's not a rebel army. It's the official army of the country that's in charge. So so they get away. They're like, oh, technically, we're not a rebel army. So it's not blood diamonds. We're the official government. So they can get away with killing people because of that technicality of the definition. So, you know, thinking about that. Uh, so we have a character who's a, uh, an artisanal uh, miner. Uh, and he dies. He's, you know, he's killed by the army. Uh, and that you know, that genocide of the of the uh, miners is uh, swept under the rug. And that, that was actually based off of something that happened in Zimbabwe where 200 miners were uh, were slaughtered and nothing happened because it's not a rebel army that did it. It's a, it's a official government. So it's not a blood diamond, which is, you know, really tragic. So, you know, I was thinking about um, that, um, that uh, incident uh, in particular. So uh, when he dies, he kind of goes into this um, purgatory space that's run by the Gutslang, which is the half elephant, half serpent. Um, and, you know, uh, I don't want to spoil anything, but, you know, there's <laughs> lots of things happen underground, <laughs> is all I'll say. Uh, jumping right back in and then I will mm. stop talking for a little while. Uh, so Wider Bites Back and Drinking from Graveyard Wells both come from like real stories. Mm. Uh, so uh, I know because I remember having conversations with you about them. Yeah. I'm curious, yeah. like, does anyone know what happened to the houses that that, mm. <laughs> that disappeared? Yeah, okay. So Drinking from, uh, from Graveyard Wells is about um, houses. So a neighborhood gossip wakes up one day to discover that houses are uh, disappearing every day. So it's kind of thinking about, is our house next? Who's next? Where are they going? And that's what the story like explores. Um, so it's actually based off of uh, an urban legend, which I believe is true. <laughs> uh, all urban legends are true. Um, where uh, in the capital city in Harare, uh, a house disappeared one day. And they actually took a news crew to the neighborhoods to go check it out. And there was no house there <laughs> when the news crew went. And the, there were the different theories. And uh, the theory that everybody has accepted is that the house uh, flew to a neighboring country, Malawi. Um, and it's just in Malawi now. <laughs> so that's, that's 
uh, that's what what happened to the house. So in the story, people are trying to you know determine what is happening, and they kind of throw around different theories that oh, the house sprouted wings and you know went to heaven. Um, you know, different uh, different theories that they come up with about you know what's happening. It's it's a curse. It's ghosts. And I kind of use that story to talk about uh, gentrification and uh, neo-colonialism, where you have this neighborhood and all the houses are, so, are slowly, you know, disappearing, and the people in that neighborhood cannot do anything about it and don't know how to stop this, uh, this kind of like cosmic horror that's, you know, taking away, breaking apart their community, basically. And then Water Bites Back is about... Uh... Or, or comes from the story of like indigenous workers having to work near bodies of water mm. and then them just deciding I'm not doing that. And so they got fired and they brought in white workers mm. to work in the same spaces and the white workers died and were like, I'm not doing that either. No, that was but crazy. then, you know, <laughs> the government gets involved and is like, Hey, what's going on mm. here? Yeah. Yeah. That's another one that actually happened uh, back home. So there was this big hydroelectric dam project. Uh, and of course, you know, they had uh, indigenous African workers working on uh, building the, the, the dam. And then they saw something fishy in the water. They're like, oh, that looks like it's half man, half fish. We don't know what's going on. So we're not going to work on this. This is a sign that there's something wrong here. Um, and then so the government fired them all and they hired white Africans. Because you're like, oh, white Africans are not superstitious like, you know, these indigenous people. Um, but then the white Africans, you know, somebody died. They also started seeing fishy stuff. And, you know, it's funny that people believed that there was something supernatural going on only when white people, you know, also saw something in the water. But, you know, when black people said there's something going on here, you know, nobody believed it. So, you know, it's interesting to think about that. So with that story, you know, I'm thinking about, um, you know, thinking about like uh, environmental degradation, uh, thinking about cli-fi um, and climate change and, you know, using, um the mermaids is a way to uh, to think about that. Um, we we love indigenous mermaid horror. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and the interesting thing about mermaids back home, so they're freshwater mermaids because we don't Zimbabwe is landlocked, so we don't have a coast uh, or ocean. So you know the thing with them is that uh, when they take you, uh, your family or your loved ones are not supposed to cry for you. And if uh, they cry for you, the mermaids will not return you. But if nobody cries for you, then they'll uh, then they'll give you back to your family. And when they give you back, um, they give you the gift of of healing. So I kind of like that. I'm like, okay, our mermaids train you to be a doctor. Like that's cool. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so this is just keep writing Mo black. And we do this, we do it. We usually do episodes every other week um, as a podcast, but in for black history month, we do one each week. Mm. Um, and we talk to black authors and every time we have one of these little spin, these spinoff shows, um, we always want to ask our guests um, some of the difficulties or barriers mm. that you came up against in the publishing world and your experience, because I mean, everybody's publishing journey is different. Um, I also have some questions about how all these stories came together, but I'd I'd love it if you could talk just a little bit about your, Mm. your publishing, your, your, your journey. Mm. Yeah. I guess one of the difficulties of being, uh, and you know, a bilingual uh, African writer is in the workshop space. So, you know, I've taken workshops in undergrad in my MFA program. Uh, is, you know, 
kind of like being asked to, you know, translate your work. I've had, uh, you know, feedback from people uh, saying uh, I should provide glossaries and, you know, end notes and footnotes to, you know, explain simple things like food. If I, you know, talk about a specific food, then I should provide a glossary to explain what that is. And, you know, it's really interesting, like when I received that, uh, that feedback, the the same person who gave me that feedback that I need to provide, you know, glossaries when I use a foreign language used Latin in their work and they didn't provide glossaries and endnotes, you know, to Latin. So it's kind of thinking mm. about, oh, okay, so this dead European language is, you know, important enough for, you know, for you to expect people to look up what it is, so to know what it is. But when I'm using African languages, this is, you know, too difficult and, you know, I'm not going to bother, just mm-hmm. provide a glossary for me. So it's, you know, it's things like that where um, you can kind of tell, like, what do people respect and what, you know, do they not, you know, what are they not going to bother to look up? Because, you know, we don't speak Latin, <laughs> you know, it's a dead language, you know, right. people have to look that up when you use that in your work. But you, you know, there's that expectation that, oh, it's Latin, so you should be willing to look it up. Mm. Yeah, that's why. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, it's funny. We were just talking about that today. I was in in my MFA program. I had class earlier today, and one mm-hmm. of the things one of my uh, person in my cohort asked the same thing. You know, because there's this whole thing about how much handholding is necessary when you're talking from a different culture, um, and, and and that kind of thing. And I and I think it's interesting because one of the instructors or one of the guests said, "Well, we have Google, so why should I have to?" hold their hand you know what i mean yeah. i just find that I, I i find what you said syncs up with that i think that's really interesting but i also think that like there's a good amount of it i don't know i feel like i feel like i talk about this in every other episode but like you know shakespeare isn't written in an english that we recognize and so my textbooks in high school had transliterations right to try mm-hmm. to keep you abreast of what's happening in the scene right um the flip of that is that if you're reading a contemporary text that has other languages in it, either you stop and you Google or you keep reading and figure it out, mm-hmm. right? Because I find that more often than not, the context clues are going to give it to you. And if you can't figure it out mm-hmm. and you don't stop reading, then you didn't need to understand that particular word to understand the rest of the story. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So like if there's, you know, food... If I describe, you know, sadza and I say, oh, the sadza was a steamy bowl in, you know, the plate, you can tell that, okay, this is food, it's hot, they're serving it hot at dinner time, <laughs> you know, and it has stew and meat next to it, like, okay, <laughs> you know, this is food, you know? information. Yeah, right. yeah, exactly, you don't have to freak out, like, okay, I don't know what sadza is, like, no, right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's not that deep, but it is that deep. Yeah. Just calm down and keep. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm I'm really blown away by this collection. I I don't think I've I think the last collection I enjoyed this much was uh, the Secret Lives of Church Ladies by Disha Filia. Um, I'm curious how you decided to order this collection. Mm. Yeah. Um. So that, you know, so that was something that I was, you know, thinking about. And I think you took a, uh, a class on uh, ordering uh, collections and you kind of sent me some notes on that. So I was mm-hmm. deciding between, okay, do I want it to be uh, thematic or, you know, what? So I was asking different people. I asked you and you, you know, sent me those resources. Then I also asked uh, during like a, a Q&A 
um, event with uh, with Kelly Link. I uh, asked her the question. You know, you've written a lot of uh, short story collection as well as as a publisher with Small Beer Press. You know, how do you think about ordering uh, a short story collection? And she said something very interesting that uh, start with your strongest story of like how you want to introduce yourself to the world, and then end with uh, a short story with with another strong story because that's how you're closing off you know, signing off uh, the collection and then put the, uh, the other, your favorite stories in the middle because uh, reviewers are going to read the beginning, they're going to read the middle and they're going to read the end. <laughs> so you want to hit those points. I was like, oh, okay. So I kind of combined that off like thinking about the themes and thinking about which are my favorite and strongest stories in, uh, in making this collection. So the teaching us how to read it over the course of the, the collection wasn't intentional. It was just a byproduct. Mm, yeah, I, th- I think it was a byproduct, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm curious too. So, um, LP mentioned something earlier about. So, I guess my question is: Were these stories existing in other places, and you mm. pulled them together, mm. or did you set out? Because a lot of folks in our community. Um, oh, there yeah. it is. Yep. <laughs> well. I didn't see that page. I'm sorry, LP. <laughs> well, people may not know our listeners, but um, so these have obviously been published other places. Mm-hmm. Let me rephrase it clearly. Um, but it, what is the process from that to um, putting together in a collection and publishing that? Because I know there's a lot of folks in our community that write short stories that try to put mm-hmm. them out in places. Um, and then so what was the inspiration behind the collection mm-hmm. after after the publishing journey for those stories that LP just showed me on the camera. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so that's interesting that you mentioned LP because it's LP who told me to get off my ass and submit my collection. <laughs> uh, you know, cause I'd been kind of, uh, you know, writing all these stories and, and, you know, I wouldn't say hoarding them, but kind of keeping them in my dark, you know, attic. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> uh, and then you know, LP, uh, you know, sent me some um, uh, small presses that were uh, accepting collections. So I was like, oh, okay, that's interesting. So I compiled another list and then ended up um, submitting it to a university press. So, mm-hmm. so one thing: always have friends in your corner that will, uh, you know, push you uh, and that you know that know that you can do the damn thing. So uh, I always credit LP for actually pushing me to seriously look into submitting a short story collection because I think, you know, the the big, I guess, myth, uh, if you want to call it that, in publishing is that nobody wants to publish a short story collection because it's not profitable. Or if you have a short story collection, you should also have a novel. That's the only way you can sell a collection. So um, looking into indie presses, looking at university presses, Really, um, you know, help me because university presses are not really thinking about much marketability and profit. They just pick the stories that uh, they love, and that's how uh, I ended up with uh, with that publisher. Um, and then, in terms of um, you know the stories themselves, putting them together, I had a professor who always said that every writer, and this was a poetry uh, professor, uh, Professor Lyrae Van Kistevenon, an awesome black woman. Ash was the first black female professor I ever had. Super oh. transformational. Um, so she always says that, you know, you kind of have these seven uh, obsessions and they show up in your work. Uh, in everything that you do, the one of those obsessions shows up. So I think those obsessions, um, 
were in each of my stories that all of them were very thematically cohesive when I put them together. So you have a lot of um, characters speaking from beyond the grave. You have feminine rage. You have the Afro surrealism. Um, and so they made sense uh, together as a body of work. Nice. Opie? It's, it's, it's really magical. It's, it's, really, it's really a powerful collection and meditation on like on an experience that I don't have on a personal level, but I feel like I have insight, um, which is honestly the most I could hope for. But also like, I feel like the insight could have been shared in worse ways. Yeah. <laughs> like I feel like I'm close to the experience versus like feeling like I got a chance to look at it through a mirror, uh, through a window. So mm-hmm. thank you for this. I'm, I'm curious, like, what did you leave out? Ooh, what did I leave out? Uh, in terms of like a story? Yeah, or, I mean, like you said, these all work together thematically, or like was this everything that you had at the time? Are there a couple stories that aren't in there? Or, yeah. Yeah, actually, there was one story that I ended up uh, removing from the collection and putting in uh, the Voodoo Knots anthology. Uh, so I originally intended it to be the collection, but I was like, okay, no, I'm going to uh, save this for the anthology. So that story uh, is called, uh, oh, what is the name now? Something about missiles. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Missile. No. Uh, okay, wait, wait, wait. I have, <laughs> I have the anthology right here. I think missile dead something. You see, there's always death in my, uh, in my titles. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I think I have it here, actually. While you're looking, I'm just thinking about when Reddit calls white giraffe how the red cloth is a part of the title there but then it shows yeah. up later on in the story where someone's uh knows where they're going because of the red cloth and that's where the where the freedom fighters are, are organizing and i'm just like in so many and and when it happened the second time we already knew what the red cloth meant and it was just mm-hmm. uh, i don't remember which story it is i think there was another instance of it too i circled that was just like oh there's that red again you know um and i can't remember where i found it either but it's amazing. The through it lines, the through lines of the stories are amazing. What'd you yeah. say? And they sound unintentional. And there's yeah, a lot right? of moyos in there's a lot of moyos in your stories too. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, I, I I like that name. <laughs> so there's lot, yeah, that. there's a lot of grandmothers, a lot of gogos. Yeah, a lot of gogos. Yeah, yeah. You know, you need the grannies, you need the aunties, the meddling aunties. They're they're always there. <laughs> <laughs> okay, here's the title: A Missile Against the Darkness. There we go. There we go. Oh. <laughs> so it was nice. darkness, not death. <laughs> that's all. That's all. <laughs> so Yvette, uh, you talked about being in an MFA program. Uh, where are you studying? Uh, at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. How's that going? <laughs> uh, going well, actually. Um, yeah. So you know, I talked about you know the workshop and translation, but I think even you know in wide institutions, you do find your your crowd. Uh, you do find the people that, you know, that know how to read your work. Um, so, you know, when you're going to workshop, I guess like the advice I would have for other writers going into an MFA is to see who knows how to read your work and just mm. hear what they say about other people's story in the workshop. And then those are the people you reach out to after the workshop and say, oh, hey, do you want to form a writing group? Some of these stories were written uh, during like a, we did kind of like a summer workshop together with some people that have taken uh, a workshop with somebody's uh, from the workshop, so we kind of just got together, did a makeshift uh, workshop together, and gave uh, each other feedback. 
Um, so yeah, I think you can find your crowd in MFA programs, even though they're, you know, white institutions and <laughs> institutions are going to institution. Um, but, you know, always find your people, you know, the people you trust and, you know, the people that are going to hold you down. Ah, that's awesome. We're all about community here at uh, Just Keep Writing. So, um, so we have a couple more questions that we usually throw out there. LP, before we get to those, did you have any other? I, I just said, oh, I wanted you to talk about Voodoo Knots. We had Shingai on a couple years ago, but uh, no one's talking. We had you on last week, but we didn't really talk about it much. Go ahead. Yeah, uh, Voodoo Knots is a summer fellowship for Black writers. Uh, so we provide uh, mentorship, support, and classes to a cohort of usually 25 uh, fellows. So we have the workshop, um, as well as our first anthology from the first cohort of fellows. And, you know, hopefully we can have an anthology for each uh, for each cohort. Um, and LP uh, is a, a co-founder. Uh, super, super awesome to you know, have him aboard and, <laughs> you know, keep everybody, you know, you know, doing what they need to do. So we're in, uh, we operate on an anti-capitalist mutual aid model. So our fellows do not pay tuition. Um, and yeah, it's just good vibes <laughs> every summer. It, it's a, it's a lot of fun and it's, it's super powerful and it's a lot of work mm. and everyone who contributes, um, in addition to the fellows not taking any, not paying anything to be there, also the people who come and provide their expertise mm. don't take any money either. Yeah. Uh, so it's a, it, it's like very, very mutual aid, and like I, I like to joke that we run off like three Zoom accounts, uh, a Twitter, <laughs> and, a, and a- yeah. <laughs> um, so where can people find you um, on the interwebs if they want to follow you <laughs> and find that, your what's work? What's next? What's oh. next? What's next? What's next? What? From Yvette. Oh, sorry. Go, please. Oh, yes. oh what am I working on? Uh, so I'm currently working on an epic fantasy novel that's uh, set in um, a setting that's loosely based off of a pre-colonial Southern African kingdom. Um, so the Great Zimbabwe, look it up, is these beautiful stone uh, ruins. It's like a stone city. And I haven't you know, really seen that much in, fan- in the fantasy context. So I kind of wanted to kind of like engage with, you know, that history because, you know, when white people, you know, colonized us, they said, oh, you have the stone city. It couldn't have been you that built these. It was, you know, it was aliens. It was, they even said biblical, <laughs> you know, figures built this. They're like, oh, it was the Queen of Sheba and Solomon who built this. <laughs> so, you know, it's interesting. So I wanted to kind of engage with that history. And it's about uh, three girls taking on the gods and, uh, the patriarchy in this uh, stone uh, stone city. So currently working on that. I have a few other projects, you know, uh, fighting for attention in my head, but I'll I'll stick to that one <laughs> for now. Oh, I love it. Yeah. You had me at epic fantasy. I love that genre. I can't wait. You got to let me know. I got to find out when that happens. So yeah, hopefully soon. Hopefully soon. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so back to my previous question. So as things are coming out um, and and all that, where can people find you and follow you and get more of your work? Yeah. And we can put it in the show notes. Yeah. Uh, on Twitter, I am at Lisa underscore teabag, as well as uh, as Instagram. Um, and then uh, my website is just my full name. And then uh, on TikTok, uh, it's also my full name, Yvette Lisa Ndovu, um, as well. So yeah, always feel free to uh, DM me or reach out to me via my website. Um, you can find me there. 
Awesome. All right, LP, you're going to ask the last question. All right. So this is what we ask everyone when they're on the podcast, at least for the first time. Um, so what just keeps you writing? Ooh. Yo, I was, you know, I was thinking about this. You know, I think my answer, you know, changes. Like, so today, actually, I was thinking of, you know, Black History Month and thinking about reading and writing how, you know, for me, it's kind of like this it started off as, this, you know, this fun hobby. I love, you know, reading. But then also thinking about how, you know, in this country, you know, reading and writing with the skin was, you know, capital punishment. You would you'd be killed, you know, for reading and writing. So just thinking about that, how, you know, how much blood was spilled, you know, for me to be able to, you know, hold up this, you know, this book and, you know, and to write and to honor those people that lost their lives you know, for simply, you know, wanting to read and write. So, you know, I've been thinking about that today and thinking how, you know, this this is not just a cute hobby. This is, you know, actually life and death. So, you know, writing to honor those people and to flex, you know, and say, you know, we're here, you know, we're, we're doing this. You know, you try to keep it from us, but, you know, you know, we're doing it and we're doing it well in your language that you forced upon us. We're doing it well. We're taking your language <laughs> and making it our own. So, you know, that's, you know, that's what keeps me writing. I guess maybe that's spite. <laughs> yeah. Watch me colonize your dictionary. Yeah, yeah exactly. Exactly. Uh-huh. I love that answer so much. Uh, <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much for being on the show. And we definitely are going to have to do this again. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I love this. This is a vibe. Thank you. <laughs> We're still talking about a Voodoo Nuts episode. And I don't even know what the fuck that's going to look like. So maybe just keep writing while black. So it'll be only two or three of us. That'd be great. And this has been Just Keep Writing, a podcast for writers, by writers, to keep you writing. You can find us at justkeepwriting.org. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Feel free to reach out to any of us on our social medias, and please jump in our Just Keep Writing Discord channel. Links to all of that is in the show notes. Lastly, please support our show by going to patreon.com slash justkeepwriting. We offer daily writing prompts, early access to podcast episodes, and much more. Thanks for listening, and just keep writing. 